Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today, the second installment of our series on books from or about the new journalism, we are going to be talking about The Journalist and the Murderer, which is Janet Malcolm's 1990 nonfiction book about Jeffrey McDonald's fraud lawsuit against journalist Joe McGinnis, who wrote the 1983 true crime book, Fatal Vision, about McDonald's conviction for the 1970 murder of his own wife and children. Also, there's a Neryl Morris thing I read. I don't know. It's important. <laughs> um, and it's also a reflection on the relationship between journalists and their subjects and writing as a sort of undertaking. But first, we are delighted to welcome friend of the pod, Sebastian Stockman, our guest host for this episode. Sub is an associate teaching professor in English at Northeastern University, where he teaches courses in first year writing and nonfiction. And I assume part of the same cast as Tristan and I of the instructional professor Purgatory. <laughs> Contingent <laughs> faculty. Yay! Sorry, it's not Purgatory, it's Solidarity. Um, right. <laughs> um, he's also a journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times Book Review, the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, and the Georgia Review. So, Sub, tell us about you, your work, why you wanted to come read this don't have to talk about work if you don't want to. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> I waved. I waved when you first introduced me. That was smart. This is my first time on a podcast. I'm first time, yeah. long time. I'm really excited <laughs> to be here. <laughs> it's about as cool as you thought it would be. Right. It's great. <laughs> no, I think you. I think you guys are. Uh, I think you guys are great, and I'm really delighted that Tristan uh, invited me to be on. I am a nonfiction writer, essayist. Uh, reviewer, procrastinator, um, <laughs> and do some teaching. You know, when, when Tristan first asked me to come on and think about something in the news journalism, this book, The Journalist and the Murderer, was one of the first things that popped into my head. Uh, even though it might not actually count as new journalism, right? 1990s, kind of late for the, after the heyday of, of when that first got codified. But I first read the book about 12 or 13 years ago, like, after my career as a newspaper reporter was over, but before my current career as a contingent faculty had started. And uh, I remember being impressed by Malcolm's like comfort with ambiguity, I think, in this uh, in this book, because uh, as Tristan, also a former journalist, knows, you know, there's that the classic cigar chomper, right? The, 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 the copy that J. Jonah Jameson the uh, the copy desk guy, right, with the shirt <laughs> yeah. sleeves. If your mother says she loves you, check it out, right? There's real, just sort of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> dick swinging swagger, right? Which is which is supposed to connote the default skepticism, but like buried under that is the assumption that that's checkable, right? In some in some meaningful way, right? Mal you know, Malcolm's sort of like, how exactly would we check out? something like your mother saying she loves you, right? You can check out that she said it, but does that really get you that far, right? Um, and, and Malcolm has this vision of the journalist as this mediator of competing narratives rather than somebody collecting the who, what, when, where, why, and then just reporting that. And that seemed to me really sophisticated at the time. And I think it is a pretty sophisticated and nuanced attitude to have towards one's own enterprise, right? And, and um, I think there's another reason I related this to new journalism, and it has to do with her extending the problems of subjectivity 
that uh, new journalism confronts because uh, one of the goals for the nonfiction novel or new journalism or whatever is to tell a true story using the techniques of fiction. And, you know, I think of these two sorts of like pillars in the the mythos or apocrypha of new journalism. And I thought it will actually, when I told you guys, I thought it was apocryphal, but I found Tom Wolfe himself telling this story. I won't quote the whole thing, but it's basically in his first piece for Esquire, he was writing a magazine piece about uh, car customizers. And uh, and so this was like the first magazine piece Wolf ever wrote. He said he was totally blocked. And this is he's telling the Paris Review this. I, I, I now know what writer's block is. It's the fear you cannot do what you've announced to someone else you can do or the fear that it's not working. And so he like got stage fright and, and called up his editor, talked to his editor. And the editor, Byron Dobell, quote, somehow shamed me into writing down the notes that I had taken in my reporting on the car customizers. I sat down one night and started writing a memorandum to him as fast as I could just to get the ordeal over with. This, 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 this whole story, even in the Paris Review, is just too polished, right? It's too like, but he says, it became very much like a letter you would write to a friend in which you're not thinking about style. There's this authenticity we're getting to. You're just pouring it all out. And I turned it out all night long, 40 typewritten triple space pages. I turned it in in the morning to Byron and Esquire, and then I went home to sleep. About four that afternoon, what happened, guys? A miracle, right? I got a call from him (laughs) telling me, we're knocking the dear Byron off the top of your memo, and we're running the piece. So this, like, I mean, it's the worst. It's like for me to hear this story when I was, you know, 21, as I probably did, right? It was like, oh, that's 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 the cool shit. Right, you just like bang it out all yeah, night, that's the and, stuff. That's how you do it, and yeah. then they just yeah. then they just take it. You know, first draft, best draft. It's great. So it's like you know, there's something about this, like something about that, like getting really close to it. I don't know. It, it, but anyway, the, the story to me seems like BS, right? Um, but it gets something about these notions. Of it sounds like somebody like, are you really going to brag about Jack Kerouacking out your? Yeah, like, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. You're gonna brag yeah, about right. going Kerouac. Yeah. Like that does not sound like something I would do. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. So right. And we'll see. I would have for sure, though. Actually, <laughs> back, back <laughs> when, when I was for, when I was first impressed with this story, that I definitely that was definitely what I was doing. And like, yeah, I mean, Tristan knows my old work habits, which are somewhat be- marginally yeah. better uh, than they used yeah. to be. But. Uh, <laughs> So, right, Wolf's after this sort of subjective experience in the new journalism. And, and there's this other early artifact, which I, I put a link to you, I sent a link to you guys, this shirt board on which Gay Talese outlined Frank Sinatra has a cold, like his famous, right, also an Esquire, his famous right around uh, profile of Sinatra, where he never spoke to Sinatra. So I have this idea, and I right, told yeah. you guys, like, you guys can totally call BS on this, because you're the scholars, I'm just a dilettante but Talese I you know I had this idea of Talese as building a kind of like modernist edifice in his piece at the center of which is this absent subject and on the other end of the spectrum of new journalism is Tom Wolfe's like postmodern gee whiz shrug at his observations stubborn refusal to cohere and so the common thread in each of those is like the discernible presence of the journalist uh himself right and so with those in mind right I feel like Malcolm is also relatedly interested in that, but but it's like, you know, she's obsessed with this idea of narrative coherence. Or, mm-hmm. I put it here, uh, she is obsessed with our, our reflexive need for narrative coherence, right? Whether we're talking about journalism or therapy or trials. 
uh, despite the stubborn refusal mm-hmm. of reality to provide that coherence. No, yeah, that's that's super interesting for one because so the the connecting thread being the journalist being the person who has like a diamond inside of them and it yeah, they just yeah. needs the right external pressure to squeeze them and then right. the privacy to just kind of release it and then you have all of the then you have the stubborn and messy world of people and realities and events that don't have little diamonds that that, that will be shit out of them and it's and it's the responsibility <laughs> of the people who have the special the special mm. thing to do mm-hmm. to like make it all sounds like the territory happen. of like the the genius though yeah. does this make sense mm-hmm. like yeah yeah it's i mean sure. i this is not a, a smackdown of journalists at all it just sounds like these methods are like yeah. the right yeah. moment of like this all yes. sounds based in some sort of like inspiration and not like the what we all know to be the outright yeah. drudgery and crap of writing yeah yeah well and it, it does get to that like and I, i'm sure we'll talk about this but uh, like i guess after i left journalism so, something like the, the sort of uh just like really weird ethics of it that i that uh, of the new journalism that i find embedded in that problem right is this idea of like okay so like it's supposed to be this medium that, that conveys mm-hmm. like uh like objective truth about what's happening but then like the 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 artist emerging as this figure and i just feel like those yeah. ideas are like such tension with each other so yeah but uh, sorry, I'll just, you know, just kind of briefly by, you know, what, why I was excited to read this. First, yeah, Sub, great to have you with us today. So, uh, Sub was, uh, Sub and I go back to, to, to our college days. To we the smoking days. The day. <laughs> yeah, smoking so we're, days. We, we were reminiscing before we started. That's right. Smoking cigarettes on the roof of the Daily Pennsylvania. And yeah. Um, and, and no, I mean, I just like, I, I have to say, you know, I, to get too sentimental, but at a college people, there are, there are people there as a hobby or didn't know what else to do. That was very much me, even though I ended up doing it for a while. And then there are real writers that, you know, this is clearly like what, you know, what, like yeah, what they should be doing. And, and I, you know, some of you when he's 20, 20, 21 was definitely that latter cab. Just uh, always, uh-huh. always very jealous of some's capacity to, really? to, to tell a story. Uh, uh, yeah, for sure. But uh, it, w- enough of that. Thank um, you, Tristan. That's, that's really nice. That's too sincere for, that's the most sincere we've ever been with each other it, it, yes and, and we, we, I, we will stop that now it's um, recorded so it definitely yes. happens so um yeah and i actually didn't know about this book weirdly even though you know i was a reporter and made the horrible mistake of going to journalism school once upon a time and and, and i've come to find out that it, this is like a staple on j school syllabuses Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I thought yeah. it was a fascinating book. Um, and as I was reading, I was think, thinking a lot, you know, in the context of the, this podcast, way back to our conversation on In Cold Blood, when we got into the kind of murky or just flat out exploitative and unethical things Capote did to make that book happen, which, okay, this classic work of 20th century literature. And what do you do with that sort of background? And I think it's, you know, it's a hard question. And, you know, another thing, too, like as somebody who thinks a lot about the rise of the novel in my teaching and scholarship, I have a lot of unfinished and unsettled thoughts about this. Yeah. So the new journalism, like uh, Capote uses this term, says the nonfiction novel. Like, what the fuck Mm -hmm. would that even mean? You know, like and and I think that Malcolm raises a lot of great questions about that. Sometimes they're sort of ham fisted, I think, but, you know, often really rich and, and, and provocative. So, yeah, I'm excited to talk about that. And then I just I have to say this. Uh, William F. Buckley of the National Review is a minor villain in this. And I love nothing more than mercilessly dunking on William He's F. A fucking Buckley. minor so. villain in the 20th century. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah, exactly. We should uh, teach a class on the novel and the essay. Yeah, that, I'm down. Let's do it. <laughs> Always trying to give myself more work. So I I want to read this because like I enjoy for real like when people try to be reflective about what their genre or their medium is doing i think that's really exciting i like that breaking the fourth wall i do think that's one of the things she's trying to do here with journalism to some degree she also seems to be reflecting on uh true crime which is this like very mostly reactionary and contested genre although Mm -hmm. whenever she says it she puts it in quotes because that's like oh that's more manipulative than the nonfiction novel which is okay okay i don't know or it's maybe ideological or something (laughs) but she's writing she's writing for the new yorkers so like maybe it's that true crime isn't her vibe and i'm only gonna like bitch a little bit about this during this episode but there's like nonfiction novel and true crime seems to be like oh well there's just like this middle brow veneer and i find that like kind of sus and if i have to blame Mm. norman mailer I'm totally cool with that. Like, <laughs> I don't remember how long that book is, but I think it's 1,200 pages. It's super long. It's, yeah. so, it's a big boy. It was not worth the time. Um, And even though, like, it's kind of obliquely mentioned here, there's something important that I think is worth mentioning, which is that, like, this is a specific case in that the bourgeois status of the subjects makes for a slightly different inquiry than it would in like Capote. Right. So like, we know that his Mm -hmm. characters are impoverished people who, you know, there's, I don't want to say that he's doing this quite this way, but there's a sense of doom that like, it was always going to be this way. If he was like poor car thieves, it's different in this case for me with this um, Navy doctor. And yeah, she so but she also feels like well he was boring and that makes him a bad subject but the capote villains were like not boring but there's a classed element to criminality here that i think interests me she also has some randomly strange opinions for example she's like well psychiatrists don't know anything anyway and i was like do what now Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's a um i'm not like i'm not even defensive about that and i was kind of like that's a big-ass opinion to have here yeah was it her dad a psychoanalyst too or something like that oh i don't know if that's true uh okay she's she's as i can mention later but she is totally i would say like in the bag for psychoanalysis like she she she's written two her two her two books before this which we'll definitely have to touch on the one of them but uh, were psychoanalysis, the impossible profession, which also grew out of a like long New Yorker piece, and then her book in the Freud archives, which is also, as you might imagine, about psychoanalysis, but uh, and about a specific guy who then sued her, and that we haven't even gotten there yet, but we'll get there. In all, you know, I've read in preparing for this episode, I read uh, like most of her work, and like once. I think I found her mentioned that she had undergone analysis, and the only reason I knew that. I knew that for sure she had it because in Robert Gottlieb's memoir, who was briefly the editor of the New Yorker back in the uh, late eighties, mm-hmm. he talked about how she and he and Janet Malcolm talked about their, they're both, they both had really good experiences in psychoanalysis. <laughs> so she, she's okay. skeptical of psychiatry but, yeah. and the DSM, oh, right. okay. but she's really into psychoanalysis. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Do you yeah. know what William I, Sean thought of psychoanalysis? I, I don't know. No, I could. 
I can imagine. Yeah, Ross, I mean, think about Tina him Brown. being alive. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> no, no, I don't. No, I was just thinking about yeah. Sean with like his secret family and stuff. He would have serious, like, yeah. No, Sean is yeah. like legitimately one of the most interesting people in writing. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Katie, you had read this before, right? I read it before because uh, sociologists read this too, and I am sociology adjacent in my day job. Um, they so, do, yeah. Why? Uh, if you're, <laughs> it has to do with, uh, I think basically the interview ethics. So if you're gonna do a, but if you're gonna do uh, ethnographic yeah. studies, you you might want to know, you might want to have this perspective in there. The reason why I wanted to reread it was uh, touched upon at the beginning by Megan, but it's a book that you open up and there's another smaller book inside and then you open the smaller <laughs> book and then there's a third even tinier book and then you and open then, that and one then and then, then there's pops out 20 minutes later. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. And finally you get to the end and there's a little plastic ring at the bottom and uh, it's really, it's great. Errol Morris is always uh, the final boss. Right, <laughs> exactly. right. Yeah. Uh, but I think totally. what really what really sold me on it this time around was the fake was the fake friends angle. And this comes up this comes up <laughs> early uh, mm-hmm. when, you know, we have our our false friend is referred to. I mean, this is referred to as right. like a false friend. She does friend. say false friend. Yeah. Yeah. She says it's like this is a this is a fake friends book. And so that again returned me to a perennial favorite of mine who does not tolerate fake friends. Uh, or anyone being jealous. Uh, and that's uh, Joe Gorga, husband of real housewife of New Jersey, Melissa Gorga. And, um, you know, it, he does have some wisdom that I think we may we may return to. So I'm going to share it now. Um, mm-hmm. He po- he posted he's a he's a uh, construction entrepreneur. Also, it's important to note. And um, on September 16th, 2020, fact check me. He posted a photograph to Instagram of himself and several of his closest and sweatiest friends. And uh, the fo- the text on the photo reads, you know, the smaller your circle is, the less snakes and rats you have to worry about. Mm. He followed this post with, all I have in this life are my word and my balls, and I don't break them <laughs> for nobody. <laughs> so, wow. so, that's you know, Same. so that's how you know. If you know somebody's telling the truth, yeah. he then goes on to say, don't trust people who tell you other people's secrets. And Whoa. that's how I and that's how I learned that Joe Gorga would never be deceived by a reporter. <laughs> and <laughs> right. that, or otherwise catfish in any way. <laughs> yeah. No, right. never, right. never. No. <laughs> but since we can't all be him, it's important to have this book. It, it truly is. A, it's a very harrowing tale of clout chasing and yeah. murder and <laughs> again the fake friends william f buckley mm-hmm. possibly the most harrowing of all i'm not doing a would you rather with any of this so don't worry about it um, yeah uh I, I also do have some some minor journalistic background covering things like um agricultural and field day uh cow cow contest who is the best cow um <laughs> i uh, yeah, so uh, and um, covering the Rutgers University ghost tour, discovering whether or not um, there were actually ghosts to be found in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and uh, I didn't were see there? any. Oh, you didn't see any. 
unfortunately, I didn't see any, but I didn't wind up being a journalist. And so, you know, maybe I just wasn't good enough <laughs> to if I was there. But excited to talk about this and excited yeah, to, right. to have you here today. Oh, thank you very much. My my uh, first journalistic endeavor was covering the Penn women's track team, which I did by like calling the coach on the phone after their meets because I never went to one. <laughs> <laughs> Who would you say went the fastest? <laughs> that is actually a pretty common trick of college sports reporting. Yeah, because totally. <laughs> a lot of time, because a lot of time, you know, if it's an away meet and stuff like that, it's like we yeah. don't have money to send. So, like, yeah, you got to recreate the obvious. <laughs> like, yeah, so what was what was the, what was what was the badminton tournament like? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> who called the ball real good and who caught it less good? Yeah. Um, so today we are going to be talking about writing forms, the novel, journalism, what makes something a nonfiction novel. We're going to be talking about ethics and consent between subject and writer. And we're going to be talking about the question of what it means to render people as characters. So, Saab, will you give us a summary? I will do my best. Yes. Katie already previewed it, a book inside a book. The Journalist and the Murderer is a book about a trial, about a book, about another trial. Right? If you can, I had to like I had to like sketch that out to make sure that was right, but I'm pretty sure that's right. Uh, on February 17th, 1970, Colette McDonald, who was pregnant, was murdered along with her daughters, Kimberly and Kristen, in their home at Fort Bragg, North Carolina where Jeffrey McDonald, their husband and father, was serving as a doctor in a Green Beret unit. He was cleared by a military tribunal, even though, as Malcolm says, quote, his story about waking up to the screams of his wife and older daughter and about seeing four intruders, three men holding clubs and knives, and a woman with long hair holding a candle and chanting, acid is groovy and kill the pigs, end quote, seems like the fishiest Manson pastiche, right? Uh, but also one that other military officers would be like, sounds good to us. Right, exactly. Yeah, it does. Right. Yes, it does definitely sound like <laughs> a Manson related story that is very much pitched to like this military community for sure. Again, yes. we don't, no one was that we have no idea what the truth is, but it, it does definitely have that feel to it for sure. Right. And that's like, yeah, and that's bringing the thing a about, candle to a yeah. murder. <laughs> bringing a candle to a murder. And we'll get into, like, we certainly don't get to the bottom of what happened that night at the end of this book. But, because um, that's not even what this book is about. So we'll, we'll, we've got to keep going. Not happy with the outcome of that tribunal. Colette's stepfather, Alfred Kassab, got the feds to open an investigation. In 1979, so nine years later, the first trial began. So between, in the meantime, McDonald had been brought up on charges, cleared by the tribunal, and moved across the country. And so the journalist and the murderer of Malcolm's title are Joe McGinnis and Jeffrey McDonald, respectively. McGinnis, sometimes considered a new journalist, sort of, like he, I've seen him in lists, whatever that, whatever that means, made his name with this book, The Selling of the President, 1968, uh, which is about how Richard Nixon was marketed to, to the public, right? And who should figure prominently in that book but Roger Ailes, RIP to a real one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and dick cheney i assume is in there somewhere right probably yeah and so mcginnis uh wrote some other books in between including one about alaska called going to extremes and he would return to alaska he moved to wasilla for his final book which was 2011's the rogue searching for the real sarah palin 
another book I have not read. Um, he wrote, uh, he also wrote a poorly received novel and another nonfiction book called Heroes that sounds bad. But if the synopsis of Heroes that Malcolm gives us is, a, I mean, I'm sure it is accurate. He's just got these like stories of him being a total creep, like around. Yes. Like, he tries to get yeah. Eugene McCarthy to do like shots. And she's like, right. No, I don't think so. And yeah. then, and William then, Styron's crab meat. Yeah, he just, yeah, oh like, he gets <laughs> He gets himself invited to William uh, Styron's house on Martha's Vineyard. Styron's going on about how, oh, yeah, I got this fancy crab meat. It's the last time I could get it this year. And he and the kid just gets hung over. It's like, I'm just going to eat this. Thing. this the, <laughs> I mean, like real fucking weirdo shit for sure. Yeah. Super weird. Yeah, it's super weird. Yeah. You're just making your um, subject comfortable. Got, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I did you a nice favor. Yeah. But yeah, Malcolm synopsizes that book Heroes, which is like McGinnis going around to people he admires, interviewing them and then finding out they like suck actually or something, right? Like he's like, Oh, these people aren't <laughs> that great. And creeping <laughs> out of the process too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like it's uh, weird that I, it's weird that I didn't have a good time with people whose prized treasured food I ate. Right. Right. Like, gee, everyone, everyone's awful. It couldn't be me, though. <laughs> it couldn't uh, be me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so, done that, he went to Styron's house on whatever, was it the vineyard or something, and ate his crab meat, which is just, it is a funny story. But then, as Malcolm tells us, in 79, McGinnis is working as a guest columnist. I don't know what that is exactly. At, at Los Angeles Herald Examiner. When he went to do a story on McDonald's defense fundraiser hosted by the Long Beach Police Officers Association. So, like, the Long Beach Police Officers Association is holding, a, like, a bake sale or drinking party to raise money for this guy accused of a triple murder of his family. And, I don't know, just, that's another odd detail. Just a lot of, this book is full of odd details, right? McGinnis presumably does his column. McDonald then invites McGinnis to embed with the defense team for the trial. McGinnis made his first big splash, basically embedded with the Nixon media operation, so he couldn't resist. He gets this big advance, $300,000. I uh, looked that up. That's about a, it's a, just over a million dollars today. But even $300,000 would be a massive advance today because those don't exist anymore. He was in a business relationship. Yeah. No, right. Exactly. They don't, you don't get a six-figure figure advance usually. So right away, they're in not just a journalist subject relationship, but a business relationship. Uh, McDonald gets a chunk of the advance and the royalties. And and McGinnis has to be made like part of the defense team somehow, like sort of an unofficial, unpaid employee of the law firm so that attorney-client privilege can be preserved. Because apparently, if there's a third party present during attorney-client meetings, then the privilege is invalidated or something, right? It's, it's annulled. So McGinnis goes across the country back to North Carolina to hang out with McDonald and the defense team, literally in a literal frat house. The uh, NC State chapter of Kappa Alpha uh, rented out its house for the summer. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> cool. Uh, and they're like, you know, hanging out. I think that's a question thing is to be made by uh, getting a murderer in our house. 
Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Everything about this is just like, what the fuck? Like, I mean, one, the defense team, and, and I do, I know one one of the lawyers at least was like, I don't think this is really great that we're doing this, but like, other, like, the lead, like a, a, I think it was named Bernie Siegel, the, the main lawyer's like, no, no, this is a fantastic idea. And just like the frat house element, it is so fucking weird. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, like not to mention the business relationship thing. That is so, it's like, I just don't know how, like, cause I, you know, well, you'll get to it, but like we get is very like, oh, I have to tell the truth. It's like, you are so fucking compromised yes. going into this. Yes. That, like, yeah. yes. He's appealing to this, like this notion, higher notion of journalism, of first amendment stuff. Right. And yeah. his responsibilities to the truth. It's like, he literally signed a contract <laughs> yeah. to, to write a book with, you know, about McDonald's. Yeah. I also love how like in these two institutions, right, like the press and the law, we instantly see how much of it is just people like tripping over their own dicks and being compromised, yes. despite the fact that like, oh, these august institutions that like we hold so sacred are just For people sure. doing a lot of dick bag material all the time. <laughs> yep. So as he's hanging out with McDonald, he comes to believe you know my memory of this even though malcolm in her book doesn't come down on mcdonald's guilt or innocence like the vibe is probably did it right from the bogus that's my that's the vibe i get from the bogus acid is groovy uh uh you know one-armed man type guy people and uh uh yeah yeah. from those people over all the way to like you know the fact that mcginnis became convinced while embedded with the defense team seems like i don't know anyway that uh, uh, yeah. so McGinnis comes to believe that McDonald is guilty. So does the jury. Mm-hmm. McDonald get is convicted. McGinnis keeps in touch with McDonald over the next four years as he writes the book. Like and right and the, these this this correspondence becomes like a crux of the next case, which is what th- the book that we're talking about today is actually about. We haven't we haven't gotten to that trial yet. <laughs> so in 1983, yeah. <laughs> McGinnis's book comes out. It's called Fatal Vision, which McGinnis didn't let McDonald see any of the book ahead of time, but he did tell him the title, right? And like, you feel like you should have. And McDonald kept talking to him, yeah. Picked something up from that. Like, he's like, you're going to love. Yeah. Yeah. I can't let you see it yet, but you're going to love Fatal Vision. It's great. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Uh, Nothing like the monster beside me. It's totally cool. Right, yeah. right. So it's called Fatal Vision. McDonald's basically painted as this sociopath or psychopath. Following year, there's a TV mini miniseries also called Fatal Vision, starring Carl Malden as the stepfather, introducing Gary Cole, good actor Gary Cole as as McDonald. Andy Griffith is also in it, although I don't know exactly what his uh, I don't know who he, he's the, his character is. His <laughs> person isn't mentioned. <laughs> in <this laughs> journalism murder. I know, right? And so. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm's very short book, I mean, this book is 160 pages. It incorporates all this to some extent, but the occasion for the book is yet another trial. And that trial is about the book Fatal Vision. And in this trial, McDonald, the murderer, is suing McGinnis, the journalist, not for libel. They sign contracts and McDonald said you can write what you want, basically, right? But it's basically for fraud, right? For breaking this contract he signed. Uh, and misrepre- basically misrepresenting himself. I think that's sort of the crux of it. Like McGinnis misrepresenting his attitude to McDonald. And the trial hinges on, you know, questions of what journalists do. And the jury of lay people 
like their horror in some sense at what journalists do, right? Because yeah. there are there are several journalists who come in and yeah. say, Yeah, this is this is fine. This happens all the time. And people are like, That's not that's not how that yeah. should happen, right? Including William F. Buckley of <laughs> yeah, the no National boy. Review, who uh <laughs> I, one of my things I, I I could just hear reading that is that transatlantic via Mississippi, even though he grew up in Manhattan accent, he did as a way of distracting you from the fact that his publication was apologizing for apartheid. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Sorry, I just, I, as I said, I love ducking on William oh, F. Buckley. He's, he's, so. <laughs> we love you doing accents. The ghost of William F. Buckley here? Yeah. <laughs> um, so that brings us to, you know, that sort of, that McGinnis's like, bad faith interaction there brings us to the, like, whether you know Malcolm's book or not, you might know this faint, this line that gets quoted a lot, right? It's sort of quoted as an aphorism, and it's our opening line, which is, every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to know what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible, which I think is actually, there's a real, lot to unpack in that sentence, but it's like, the, the crux of it is that jur- the, the uh, practice of journalism is itself morally indefensible, and the question is just whether or not you are like... Mm-hmm. Whether you have faced that and made you know made your peace with it, or are d- deluding yourself, right? Yeah, I mean, because that like it is very. Fair. I mean, it, I did even though I didn't know that book. Like, I had definitely heard that line, and and I think in journalism in the school context. But like, yeah, no, I mean that honestly, part of that is I think one of the reasons why I ultimately was like, I don't know that reporting is really is for me. I just remember like, I mean, I always like resisted any effort to pull me into like crime reporting, but sometimes I would just have to do it. Mm. I fucking hated it so much. And like one thing I hated was just basically being a stenographer to the cops. But the other yeah. thing is, it's like, you know, like asking people in like extremely vulnerable situations to like talk about what they're going through. And I just and and, and look, I mean, sometimes people really are, you know, like, like or want that. But like, you know, are, are happy to have that sort of like outlet. But like it just it always just felt so fucking intrusive. And that and I think like because like what I'm doing in this position and whatever it is that you as the person I'm interviewing wants out of this or just are at such kind of cross purposes, you know? So anyway, I, it, it's like one of those lies. It's like, yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's, there's definitely some substance to this, I think. But surely there's a way to sort of like acknowledge it, account for it and not just say like, Oh, this is immoral because like, but then, then don't we need muckraking types who like go into, you know, factories yeah. and demonstrate like how terrible the working well, conditions are. Right. So it's like, it's yeah. I, those, it's, that's like the journalism from the early 20th century that I'm like, I get why somebody would do this job. You know, it seems heroic in a lot of ways. And you can still say like, yes, of it, course, this is has like a moral crisis at the heart of it. And I think that for me, part of like what it what drives it is a sense of like a, a kind of greater good coming out of it, right? Like, yeah, I mean, like blowing the lid off like the fucking meatpacking industry or or you know, like United Fruit or whatever, like that's fantastic. But it is like you know, okay, like what does the public really get out of like kind of a true mm-hmm. crime narrative? It is like very voyeuristic, and and look, I mean. In Cold Blood is like one of the, you know, it's one of the great books of the 20th century. And it's like, I would never say I'm mad it exists, but it is also, it's just like, what, you know, I mean, and look, like, I think mm-hmm. that like in it with a book like that, there's a much longer conversation because it has like this huge literary afterlife, but just like in the process of just reporting that case, like, eh, you know, mm. I, is there a public interest here? I don't know. Yeah. You know it's so anyway, well, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, that, well, that's the thing, right, is that what we have is a book that's intensely focused on individuals, but then mapping these individuals perfectly onto professions so that we can talk about professions right. as yeah. individuals perfectly. Yeah. So, right. And that line at the beginning definitely strikes me so differently having read the book because after having read it, it's like, what I do is morally indefensible, and I happen to get sued all the time. But that's because it's morally <laughs> indefensible, you see. Right. So, um, you know, what can we do? And I like it. And I like it. Yeah, and I, I love yeah, it. I like yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. But, and I happen, to, I happen to love court transcripts so much, and that has nothing to do with this. And she's also, like, able to position herself as, like, in this trial, which is like, oh, well, this guy's a piece of shit probably killed some people this guy's a piece of shit probably lies to everybody so she doesn't have to tackle anything of a different kind of structure so she doesn't have to do the the truman capote thing where it's like reporting on this family and these like poor men who did this is like Mm -hmm. squidges this out a lot whereas like i come in jerusalem and we have completely the opposite effect because fuck nazis say whatever the fuck you want like right yeah right so she doesn't have to like She's not in a position where either of these people ever has felt morally defensible as subjects. Yeah, 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 and and also, you know, say speaking about like the clutters of in cold blood or whatever, like the the victims in by the time Malcolm is here, right? The victims are almost twenty years dead, right? right? And so it's sort of like so we are able in some way to focus on these two slime balls, right? Right. Yeah. So she starts with her famous opening line, right? This morally indefensible. And yeah. she she proceeds to sort of make her case, right, by quoting extensively from McGinnis's letters to McDonald, which is what McDonald's lawyers also do, right? They they quote from McGinnis's letters uh, to McDonald where he's like, You got a raw deal, how could they do it to you? How could they do you like this? Uh and then uh even while McGinnis is writing to other people and, and like this guy's a, a psychopath. And Malcolm yeah. comes to all of this after both trials have, are over. The McDonald v. McGinnis trial, McDonald's suing of Joe McGinnis ended in a hung jury, which is another really fascinating little side because light there. Because the uh, activist got mad. She's like another wild character with, with who we can yeah. get to. But, but so... Malcolm gives us this pressy in like, um, you know, probably less time than I've done it here um, of like, you know, the murder trial, <laughs> the, the murder, the, the trial, the book, and then the suing of the murder, the suing of the journalist by the murderer, right? McDonald suing of McGinnis. And now she's sort of like doing a postmortem via trial transcript and then going and, and tracking down and interviewing various actors involved in the trial and and through this right she sort of she's latched on to this case because she calls it quote the, a and this is sort of what you were talking about katie with like we have individuals mapping onto types right she calls it a grotesquely magnified version of the normal journalistic encounter mm-hmm. yeah and you know so she so she goes and she talks to she starts to talk to mcginnis who then you know, and she, she, it's an inter- I don't know. I wonder what you guys thought of that. She had this interesting thing of like, she starts by going up to talk to McGinnis and she's like, oh, it's going to be two journalists talking about the like moral complexity of their profession. 
but McGinnis doesn't really want any part of that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. he stops talking yeah. to her. He's, uh, he just seems like such a fucking um, creep throughout this. He really does, you know. But, <laughs> but I also too like what I, I what I appreciate like when she goes to interview McGinnis, right? That like she's like, yeah, right. She's all like, oh, like this will be good because we have like two practitioners of the craft. We could talk about the higher level. But she's like, he's as dear caught at the headlights as any other subject in that moment. So it is, and yeah, I mean, right? It, which I mean, yeah. like. I mean, I didn't. I didn't have a lot of sympathy for Joe McGinnis in this, and I think knowing the broader context generally, but like, it, I did also see that, like, yeah, I mean, it it doesn't matter how much you know of how the sausage gets made. Like, that has to be a very unsettling position to get put yeah. in, you know, like to to suddenly be the kind of subject yourself. He doesn't you know? also seem to be as like abs- like nakedly stupid as mcdonald just to be like he's quite you know self-absorbed but he doesn't seem so yes. stupid as to be like if i right. keep talking i'll get myself out of this one like- <laughs> yeah right exactly that i mean i i think it might will the, the whole uh the mcdonald case itself it, you know is still going on as 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 i'll i'll mention in a minute here it's like it, you know mcdonald is still alive mcginnis is not uh mcdonald is still alive but you know she she quotes from these letters 12 so let's see 12 days after mcdonald's first letter to mcginnis yeah so that's like after the trial mm-hmm. right and mcginnis says dear jeff this is the reporter the journalist writing to the murderer after his conviction after they've been uh, hanging out at the frat house all summer and also after that mcginnis has decided that mcdonald is in fact guilty right. of the yeah. triple murder of his wife and daughters but he says to jeff every morning for a week now i've been waking up wondering where you are a bus christ it seems that the only function a ride across country in a prison bus might serve is to make your destination seem not quite as awful as it otherwise would have right uh and then he says I have plenty of my own thoughts, which I'll be getting to sooner or later, but mostly I am relieved to see that you are apparently able to function constructively. Also, I'm glad you didn't kill yourself because that sure would have been a bummer for the book. (laughs) Uh, Oh, man. Total strangers can recognize within five minutes that you did not receive a fair trial. There, another one. How could 12 people not only agree to believe such a horrendous proposition, but agree with a man's life at stake that they believed it beyond a reasonable doubt in six and a half hours? I mean, it's just like clearly saying the something the opposite of what he thinks, right? And he's trying to ingratiate himself in, in, into or stay in the good graces of his buddy, his fellow poon hound, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but uh, he... <laughs> Sorry, can we say that on the podcast? Oh, yes, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. We encourage it. So he's uh, he's clearly decided this, and then you know his def- his defense lawyers bring in, as you've said, Joseph Wambaugh and William F. Buckley, and they had this whole other list of writers, including Tom Wolfe, yeah. to come in and talk about how this is like this is regular acting, <laughs> yeah. right? This is like this is what you do. You have to lie to your. They put together a great lineup. <laughs> You have to lie to your yeah. subject. It, well, it, you can you can tell it's regular because William F. Buckley's here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. The fucking definition of regular. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, and like right. both of the 
Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. No, I mean, that's the other thing. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. Journal. Oh my God, some icky fucking people out of that movement. But like the uh, no, but like Wamba, like he says this like really fucking stupidly classes shit about like oh, well, if the jury had been better educated, they wouldn't have had any problem seeing them. And it's like, well, and then like you know, Malcolm's like, well, actually, like even I mean, that's just factually inaccurate. A couple of them have like master's degrees and stuff, but also it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, like. And then, and then Buckley, Jesus Christ, like, well, now I'd have to differentiate uh, since Thomas Aquinas sense the the the, the, uh, the untruth from the lie. Uh, oh yeah, right. yeah. It's like, yeah. and it's just like, does fuck off, dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wamba's like, yeah. If they'd read more books, they would, they would. Uh, uh, understand my totally regular distinction, untruth. my totally normal distinction yeah. between a lie and an untruth, right? They're yeah. very different and things. Like, yeah. That's right. And so, yeah, I mean, there, so there's this long, so just for, uh, just to like, because we've mentioned Errol yeah. Morris, right? Like, there's, in 95, this team published a book called Fatal Justice, reinvestigating <laughs> the McDonald's murderers, where they raised questions about the original conviction. And then in 2012, more Errol Morris, uh, fellow uh, Cantabrigian, that's what we call people who live in Cambridge, because we have oh, to have no. <laughs> 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 my, my neighbor, Errol Morris. Um, <laughs> the Kennedy School of Government, too. Uh, Father of Morris. Hamilton Morris, U of C alumnus and total weirdo drug guy. That's right, yeah. Cool. I didn't know that. He also all right. wears all white. Wait, Errol Morris or Hamilton Morris? Hamilton Morris. He's a weird dude. Oh, nice. <laughs> wears all white. Great. Uh, so Morris had tried to get financing for a film of to revisit the McDonald case, but never could get the financing together. So he put it all into a five a book almost as long as Fatal Vision, arguing that McDonald was innocent and it was the acid heads after all. This, this book is called A Wilderness of Error. And I had plans to read that for this podcast, but I didn't. <laughs> because, not only because I didn't want to, but because, <laughs> um, you know, that's the book is not about is not about that original right, murder. Yeah. Right. Again, as we've said, but even though, you know, it's like that murder is still sort of being hashed out, hashed over. So Errol Morris wrote that book. And then just last year, there was another this miniseries on FX called The Wilderness of Error. Mm-hmm. And they interview Morris himself combatively. So it's just yeah. like, you know, this one murder from 50 years ago is still spun out right yeah yeah so so i have a question which is uh it relates to to partially to the quote that you read at the beginning which is that every journalist who's not too stupid or who is too stupid or to film himself and so then we have like the credulous widow and stuff and and but this is this is about something that's been blown up to a grotesque aberration like that this that this particular case that this case mm-hmm. that the book is about that's what this constitutes but Ma- yeah malcolm calls it the grotesquely magnified version the, of the thank, normal journalistic thank you the encounter. grotesquely magnified version of the normal journalistic encounter by grotesquely magnifying the normal journalistic encounter you no longer have it you have something else mm-hmm. and so and so then mm-hmm. i look at this mm-hmm. book that's called the journalist and the murderer and i think this is about two this is about some people and then it turns out to be about like that and also journalism on the whole and what what it means to do journalism and be a subject or practice it and 
I guess what I'm wondering is what do we learn from this or where can we go that's productive from that standpoint to like say anything because we have this outlier right. and I know that's valuable, but right. when you only have the outlier and none of the other quote unquote data, then what do you, how do you make anything of it? I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, I guess who's doing the magnifying, right? Is it, is it that she's looking extra close? <laughs> is, is she just the, 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 the court, I guess, is doing the magnifying, right? The, 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 the court case is what's magnifying this encounter. And also, right, she calls it the grotesque, yeah, grotesquely magnified version of the normal journalistic encounter, but it's also like not a normal journalistic encounter, right? As we've already talked about, they're in a business relationship. That is not a regular journalistic encounter. You know, what she, I think what she's really wanting to get at is this fundamental assumption, the difference in the assumptions that the subject enters the encounter and the, the, the assumptions with which the journalist enters the yeah. encounter. Right. I think that's the I think that's what's being magnified. And that's like I do think that sort of holds up because it's always I mean, knowing this, having been on the reporting side, you're, you're always disappointing the person you're writing yeah. about because they don't think. Yeah. they Right. You just you don't think you, they don't they, they don't think they sounded right. They don't think they, you know, except when I lived in Delaware and wrote 2000 words a week about high school football, they kind of like <laughs> they, they, the, the Middletown High That's football right. team. They thought that was just about enough, although some of them could have done with more. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I believe you also interviewed uh, 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 jo jo Joseph R. Biden uh, and, and his, and his, his editorial opponent, Ray Clapworthy, who I have I, personal I, history with. Oh, I did. I did. I was. Yeah. 2002. He was running for Senate. Uh, Joseph Robinette Biden. <laughs> you may have heard of him. Uh, and he. Uh, he was uh, uh, running for real running for his reelection Senate reelection. And for some reason, I was the I was like the sports writer at the weekly Middletown transcript, which had two reporters and an editor. But my editor boss couldn't go to the debate uh, because it was a radio debate and Joe Biden was going to win and nobody really cared. And so I went to ask some questions yeah. and I did fine, I'm sure. But, but Biden said, a, <laughs> Biden said a classic thing, which I was just thinking of, I guess, because of Delaware yeah. and Tristan yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's related Biden to Malcolm's <laughs> enterprise, right? Famous Biden fan. Oh, yeah. right. uh, but it's related to, you know, he did this, he did this thing that politicians do all the time, which is they trot out this, you know, a, a hoary line of uh uh he says he says something like my old friend alan simpson used to say and i don't know if it's alan simpson it was alan simpson biden said but my old friend alan simpson used to say you're entitled to your own opinions you're not entitled to your own facts <laughs> right and like and like great great just but like from so what i from alan simpson but, the most fucking cliched right? like trite yeah, line right Oh, wherever yeah. you go there yeah. you are but but joe sold it like yeah. he, he you know i mean well, no, he's, I mean, he's got, he, could, he was charming he's he got was no he's charming. got he's got some political talent for sure he's just you know an asshole <laughs> but we do entitle ourselves to our own facts right in, in terms of like that, that's a, that's a thing that uh, malcolm gets at here which is like we out of you know the room the room she calls actuality or whatever right and her and her afterward like you know we sort of assemble these different narratives using different facts and like 
you know, so it's a good political line, but it's not how we, you know, some of us think that Comet Pizza was. Would you like to come back next week to discuss Comet Ping yeah, Pong yeah, Pizza? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sorry. Not, not a, not, I understand not a word any of you are saying. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> we'll fill you in. But uh, yeah, no, but I, I do think so yeah. on this, like, I do think that the, that class, right? I mean, oh, hey, here comes the commie that uh, is, is important here, right? Like, because, uh, you know, I mean, right, like the whole, cons- okay, the can like the sort of consent issue, which I think also is embedded in this, like, how, you know, that the, the, the journalist motives and the subjects are kind of across purposes. I mean, I think like one thing and Megan, I mean, you you pointed this out when in, in your kind of opening stuff about just how different. Perry Smith and Dick Hickok as as subjects feel than McDonald. And I mean, I think, yeah, like partially like what Malcolm is on to that, that they, that, that McDonald just seems to be very difficult to like write as a character because he's so like, he just, well, one, he won't Mm -hmm. stop talking, but he won't, but he won't say the right kind of stuff to like give him some sort of depth. But yeah, I mean, he's a fucking doctor who like, you know, was like this green beret type in a way that like, you know, Smith and, and Hickok are both very sort of like, you know socially marginalized kind of figures right and that and that like truman capote as like the the you know the fancy journalist uh you know showing up it just there just feels like a very different sort of set of circumstances there than this guy who not only is he you know does he have this you know somewhat you know uh rarefied to an extent class position but the fucking defense team it's like yeah come on come in bed with us that's just very very different than like mm-hmm. say that what happened within yeah. cold blood you know well, and it's hard for me to – I don't think most of us feel much sympathy for like – for the purposes of right now, we'll say that he probably killed his family, although we can't know these he was, things. He was convicted of but then, that, which is not to dispense with the truth. Okay. But that's, you know, that's basically where we – that's where we start the narrative, knowing that, right? Yeah. Right. But that we also like – at least I read and then he was like held to this military tribunal where a bunch of thick-necked assholes were like well you seem like a doctor this sounds completely understandable that somebody would bring (laughs) a candle to a murder we know that the the problem they are you know like yeah yeah they were in tears doesn't it say one point that the the tribunal was in tears was like choking up so like yeah nothing redeems him in any way so whatever this like this she is producing from the outset this idea that no matter what this is damaging okay i at least I'm willing yeah. to entertain this, but it's really like, I just don't think it's like sufficiently structurally analytic in terms of like, who's getting damaged under what circumstances, right? So it's like, when mm-hmm. I think we know Perry Smith and Dick Hickok are, are profoundly damaged mm-hmm. by that in ever, in a lot of ways, but like this guy just seems kind of uh, like weirdly untouchable emotionally yeah. or something and, and i think too why this you know that there's a very mm. like so this was a fraud the, the civil suit was a fraud claim right that basically mcginnis had defrauded him as to his intentions i don't think it could have been a libel claim regardless of their contract for the simple reason that mcdonald was convicted of murder now again right. that's not you know that's not establishing absolute truth or falsity from, from a legal standpoint until some appeal overturns that that has been dispensed so like in some way like uh, and i think this is a line right. uh yeah and, and i think i think that malcolm says this at one point basically. that he uh, like quoting yeah. an attorney that he was like he was an un, basically an unliable un, unlibelable 
uh, figure, you know, which is that that's real that that in and of itself is a really weird and kind of interesting concept to, to you know, to, to sort of pose these questions around. I mean, is it weird as a direction to take this? Because I think we're wrestling with the, the interviewer and the subject. But just because you brought it up, like, I have to know why sociologists read this. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm just like, yeah. I cannot <laughs> let this go. That people who do interviews... Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, because apparently in the public sphere, people have taken these this first paragraph where she's like, we're vultures and we ruin people and have made mm-hmm. it about interviewing and not just journalism. Yeah. And so, so and yeah. to be to be clear, like, I I know that it gets read. I don't think that it's it's not like a how they don't take it out into the field and be how to jur- <laughs> you want to be the journalist or the murderer. Yeah. Um, right. But I, but I, I'm actually gonna I'm gonna speculate a little bit about why they might read it in that discipline because stuff like living in the frat house or whatever, like going and in and in bed, like like you know the um the uh, Alice Goffman book too, right? Like she lived, I think she didn't live with the her subjects, but she lived like I think in a, an apartment right next to them and stuff like that. And that book has a whole other controversy, the On the Run book, but. So I think that that's what it is. It's about that, like getting these these extended close relationships where you do like you unavoidably get close to people and form opinions about them. Then like, what do you do with those opinions when you're then purportedly presenting fact like what what happens to that? Like Those relationships Mm -hmm. aren't facts, but they do frame your view of the facts. She mentions the like participant mm-hmm. observer thing right doesn't she doesn't and she doesn't yeah it's fairly some, close was, to the end that's another moment where i feel like i'm not saying that that's incoherent i'm just saying like you're getting way beyond the scope of practice if you're talking about journalism and you're saying shit like participant observer mm-hmm. because then because mm-hmm. of just where my brain goes i'm like you mean margaret right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. like what are you talking about yeah. when you say well, that right but i mean i don't know it's it is like i think when you do particularly any kind of like long form stuff like this that is like so based on these kind of extended interviews and developing a character it's like you you you're like you know you're sort of pl- i always had this feel as like a reporter you're play acting at being an anthropologist and you're play acting at being a psychologist and I, and but 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 and well and this is mm-hmm. this is the category that i you know and I, that i really wanted to talk about and i kind of sort of see as as part of this and or maybe even a way uh, uh, you know a way uh, or just a new way of thinking of it is you're you know like part novelist like you probably a lot more uh, relationship to that than than some of these other sort of like you know more you know the, mm-hmm. the objective like nonfiction but i just like and yeah so like one of the big premises of the new journalism right is like presenting you know approaching nonfiction and reporting with the techniques of fiction which means like creating characters that feel very novelistic what do we mean by that oh it seems like they're real people in the world but she has all these moments where she's like but actually real people don't feel like real people right and and that like she like this is on 122 she's talking about how like mcdonald like you know this sense that he kind of like undercut himself because he sort of gives off this kind of weird vibe when he he talks like when McDennis said he was trying to get McDonald to, quote, start talking like a real person, he could only have meant that he wanted him to start talking like a character in the novel. McGinnis's letter, whose object was precisely to invalidate McDonald's reality and enlist his aid in creating a literary character out of himself, lays bare one of the fundamental differences between literary characters and people in life. Literary characters are drawn with much broader and blunter strokes 
are much simpler, more generic, more as they used to say mythic creatures than real people. And their predator natural vividness derives from their unambiguous fixity and consistency. Real people seem relatively uninteresting in comparison because they are so much more complex, ambiguous, unpredictable, and particular than people in novels. Um, and then it goes into this weird thing about like that's the psychotherapy is, is like is very she loves psychoanalysis. No, psychoanalysis. But I just did I like that was one of the concepts in this book I did find like super fascinating that it's like what makes fictional novelistic characters feel real is precisely the ways in which they're not real. And what makes a real person narrated on the page feel not real is that they're fucking boring. And like, you know, they, 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 they do, they vary, they're, they're not consistent, you know, and they, and, and yeah, so I don't know. Well, no, she, she talks about McGinnis drawing on Christopher Lash and some other people, right? About like, it, because, because he could, he couldn't get what he needed from McDonald. He like brought in theorists of narcissism or, uh, or sociopathy. And like one of whom Malcolm thinks like Malcolm doesn't think sociopaths exist or right. something, right? Like, oh yeah. She reads a bunch exists. of books on it. Like, that famous, like Katie, maybe what, what's the, the two faces, Quest the, uh, the mirror with the mask, the mask, the mask of sanity or the, the mask of sanity. Uh, yeah. The mask of sanity. Yeah. 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 And that's her. And cause she thinks like that psychopaths don't exist, but that the people who write about them are so hyper invested in their existing because they think that people can't be evil, yeah. which another that's another one of those like things where I feel like, can we why do we need to speculate about how whether people can be evil or not? Yeah, yeah. Like this is some yeah. new journalism territory where they get into like pseudo philosophy. Sorry, but like yeah. <laughs> they have these moments yeah. of like reflecting no, yeah, on I think it right. seems like partly this medium is intended to allow journalists these like moments of awful like philosophical reflection on what human nature is well it also is it's like i managed to write a book about me i managed to write an article about me i managed to write a story about you where you look so vivid that what you see is me (laughs) yeah like that's like that's the best Hmm. i guess like in that and that's the that's the best of it and that's why i think it's incredibly important that it's a fraud case like Mm -hmm. yeah and that Mm. The cases that I guess hers were libel, right? They were libel, but this was fraud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah, and hers so was a libel case. Yeah, that these I and I'm not being particularly coherent right now, but this presumably, you know, commonly felt urge to strike back at a journalist who you feel is wronged or whatever, whether it's a libel suit or whether it's an angry email or whether it's whatever, is different than this fraud concept because that depends on knowing other minds and that's why in this we are in a henry james novel half the time he knew and she knew (laughs) that she knew that he didn't know and then they hung fire for a while and then that was that yeah i think that's right the the right the she has in the afterward she talks about like the fraud case and how like you know, it's okay to get get, the libel case, right? She's like, it's okay to get sued for libel because it's like kind of like therapy (laughs) for the subject, right? The law, she calls it the law cure. She thinks like all kinds of things are like have this therapy relationship. It's like, I don't think they do actually. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even mad about that. I like the Freudian verbiage. Right. But she says, uh, my so in the the afterword, I guess we haven't gotten there yet, right? In the afterword, she talks about She's like, well, you know, when this, when my account of this trial came out in the New Yorker, everybody thought I was talking about myself, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. right? 
because just just because I was getting sued by the subject of my previous. I don't book. know why they all thought. And that. I didn't put it at the beginning <laughs> they of there was the something... book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. You know, and that that book in the Freud archives is actually it, I I recommend that book. There's a great edition from uh, New York Review Books Classics. And that's about this guy, Jeffrey Musayev Masson, who was a tenured Sanskrit scholar at University of Toronto <laughs> and then decided to go into trading as an analyst and got really into that and became like this shooting star in the psychoanalytic firmament and got so close so fast. It was like super, this super charming guy, not a McDonald type I don't, because he's like more interesting than that, I think, but like was really charming and it immediately ingratiated himself to this guy, K.R. Eisler, who was the head, who was like in charge of the Freud archives and got really close to him and was like pretty much met on a Freud and was like ordained or anointed as like the successor to Eisler. He was going to take, you know, having come from Sanskrit at Toronto to like training as an analyst in like just a three or four years, he was like, he was going to take over the Freud archives when Eisler died. And but then before, like in his like first year, like first like pro probationary year as like assistant director or something, he comes out with like so just before he can take over, Masson gives this paper in which he accuses Freud of having erroneously abandoned his seduction theory. And Masson says, quote, his entire theory after he abandoned seduction was the product of moral cowardice. I, and then this blows things up and like, you know, he's like, he's like uh, fired and he sues Eisler and he sues all these people. But I found this, I am a, a well, only because I've read all these books, these Malcolm books, I'm a lay Freudian now, <laughs> but uh, oh, that's, that's okay. Never mind. It's some Ouroboros hours forever with Freud. waiting for it Freud. to happen. Right, right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but I this was really interesting to me in in context of journalist and murder because like as I understand seduction theory was this early Freud theory that hysteria or whatever afflictions were were related to childhood sexual traumas. He moved away from that, right. uh, thinking that some of the sexual traumas that he was encountering, people were reporting, were were invented, and then going on to sort of argue it doesn't matter whether or not those traumas actually happened, only what the patient is making of them now, yeah. right? And the thing is, like, if you read his case studies, like, the evidence that Freud, like, from his more narrative stuff, he he just makes so clear that he takes that stuff very seriously. He doesn't care as much about whether it's invented or not, but that it has, like, a mm -hmm. dramatic, like, implications for the hysteric who's, like, a sick mm -hmm. person and not, a, not somebody who's, like, making shit up has been one of these things that's, like, been right. completely turned into, like, pop culture Freud in absolutely the wrong way. Right. So it's like you only have to read mm -hmm. Dora mm -hmm. to know that like the upshot of mm -hmm. his saying like I've abandoned seduction theory means that it's like just more talking cure for people who've experienced sexual violence. Right. So it's sorry. I, I, I know I'm on one <laughs> because I have feelings about this. No, I think I but I, I'm I'm I like I think that's great. And I think Malcolm agrees with you. For sure, right? She's she's on she's super on the Freud train, uh, but 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 Masson. So Ma there's a quote in there where Masson says to a bunch of psychoanalysts who are standing around talking, "Don't you care what really happened? Isn't that what is really important?" And then the psychoanalyst who's reporting this story says, "At which point the group just sort of backed off and the discussion ended because the answer to that, you know, from an analytic point of view, is no, we're not so concerned with what really happened." 
We're concerned with how it got worked into the patient's life. And so this, I was drawing this sort of circle around, like it serves as a lens through which to view Malcolm's work in a way, in that process of sifting through experiences to find narratives to live with really informs her work and thinking, mm-hmm. I think. See, now I kind of like Maybe. her more because it's about <laughs> like the the wider impact of what it means to have made these inquiries and that it's like less contingent on mm-hmm. assigning blame than it is like making your way carefully through the impact. Mm-hmm. Like then I think that this is getting more interesting. I, I think Oh good. I'm, I'm good. Because before um, I found her doing a little bit of like, we're just bad people and as bad people, we're just gonna have to like make our way through this bad thing that we have to do. And I'm like, okay, like I get it, but so I mentioned all the massive stuff just to bring it to this chunk at the at the in the afterwards, she says, My suggestion that all journalists feel or should feel some compunction about the exploitive character of the journalist subject relationship was held up as a covert confession of the wrong I had done Jeffrey Masson, who was promptly harnessed into the project of showing my text, the, the journalist and the murderer text, to be nothing but the product of a guilty mm-hmm. conscience. Right. Right. And so she's, yeah. And, like, I think, so I think that is the, the lens that, I mean, this is now the, I think this is the lens that Malcolm has on her work because she's always bringing in, whenever she can bring in a psychoanalytic sort of lens, she'll do it, I feel like, in, in almost anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, but right. I mean, that was, yeah, like, because it is partially like a mythical reflection on, like, what, yeah, like, what journalism is the conditions to be able to even even do it. And, 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 uh, and, you know, this kind of unresolvable sort of tension between, like, the, the motives of the subject, you're never going to align with the motives of the journalist. But yeah, I mean, like, I think, you know, and, and sometimes I, you know, I found this, the uh, psychoanalytic stuff a little bit sort of ham fisted or like kind of maybe sort of like pop psychology. But I also, but I mean, there's, you know, and, and so, like, I don't think it necessarily works throughout the whole book. But I did think that, like, it it was a, another really interesting lens and one that does sort of get to sort of like, yeah, the idea of like the sort of like the, the like the character development in nonfiction, right? And that like being able to write a like a, a like psychology in the world that looks real to us. I did think that that stuff was like really like so that that to me was some of the most compelling stuff mm-hmm. from here. Um, and I think it also like I, unfortunately for how we feel about like the new journalism and what we've taken from it. I mean, I do feel like there are just like kind of unresolvable sort of tensions at the heart of it. Right. Like, I mean, because like the idea of, of yeah. I mean, and again, like a yeah. lot, it has produced some really compelling writing for sure, but like fictional techniques applied to like the non-fictional world these are not the same thing <laughs> they cannot be the same thing you know what i mean so so it's it definitely gave me a lot to right. think about this book for sure sorry there's some moment that i'm looking for where she talks about how like that the journalist is never a reliable narrator where's she has this moment where she's yeah. like this is now i'm finding this much more interesting that she sort of goes back and forth on like it's novelly but it's not but like the world feels novelly to us right. and so we're like yeah. denovelizing our world to some degree and that back and forth mm-hmm. is like actually really generative is that in the journalistic eyes an over reliable yes. narrator 160 yeah unlike the eye or 150 or 159 is where it starts it looks like uh uh the eye character in journalism is almost pure invention yeah this is the uh, um, that the journalist the thinks she's Superman and Clark Kent. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. And I want to be like bad reader, Janet Malcolm, because uh, Clark Kent is a journalist. So. Um... Right. <laughs> yeah. No. It's, it <laughs> right, works exactly, perfectly. Right. It is just 
it is funny because to to look at this like this the reflections on the eye of the jur- of the journalist and then who's the writer and then who's the subject really and then how they present themselves to you and then how you get at truth about anything from that but we also have this thing of like the journalist the job of the journalist is also in this to make three hundred thousand dollars to write a book <laughs> yeah so, yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so yes. it's like it's yes. not like oh it's my disinterested pursuit of my of truth that i happen to be getting filthy rich off of by writing a book called yeah. fatal vision the only title and i realized as you were saying that that it should have tipped him off the only title that would have tipped him off more is the journalist and the murderer <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right right me, <laughs> me and jeff yeah and well there's the part where wamba is like Wamba is talking, you know, I think I feel like Malcolm calls Wamba on that at one point, right? Where she's like, isn't it a commercial interest? You know, Wamba's like, oh, he's got a responsibility to the truth. And like he's got to, oh, the the book is like an unborn child, and he's got to bring it to <laughs> yeah, term, yeah. right, or something like that. This is the diamonds that just need the right kind yeah. of pressure to. Yeah, the diamond. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Wamba returned to the book as a living thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a book is a living thing. When you get to the point where you have this entire investment in it, well, investment key, it, then this book is as much alive as anyone you've ever known, sometimes more so. And you have a moral obligation to protect that life, to not let it die of mourning. It's like, this is wild. Yeah. It's a- uh, if I have to tell an untruth to a sociopathic criminal to protect this living thing, that's where my moral obligation lies. But then he calls the next day and says, I think I was on one, you know, I think <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. overboard. Uh, but, do um, I have to be a 75 million year old alcoholic white man to think that every book is as important as these people think yeah, their books I know, are? I know. To, yeah, to right? me, um, they totally. are all as real as any person that has ever lived. I would save a book from a fire before a person and also all of the presidents on your money. Treat them as real people. They are real people. That's right. <laughs> right, right. Bob Woodward over here. Thank you yeah. for showing up. It is a tour of fascinating characters. And I didn't want to not yes. mention Lucille. <laughs> She's uh, such the, a the, the journalist, the holdout. The, the Lucille Dillon, I just had it and then I left it, uh, who was the holdout in the trial, who was voting yeah. for McGinnis, yeah. right? Voted, she was the sixth who didn't vote with the other five to award McDonald all the money. And the first, the first reading is that she brought animal rights literature on the first day of the trial and they, she got snubbed. And so then she was like, I'm done with you yeah. people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But then we find out that she's also she did like, a Scientology, and people were like, "No yeah, thanks." Yeah, yeah, and and she called. Uh, she she was also a holdout in another tri- oh. the only other trial she was a juror on. She called yeah, the hung right. jury. Yeah, she and right? she she seems just but, like this committed a, contrarian. But that was a good word. Yeah, she, she just did. seems like this committed contrarian, right? Like she's yeah, just exactly. like, oh, oh, you people think that you're going to vote one way? Nope. And then she just like her own account of the kind of other jurors. She just absents herself from the rest of the deliberations and just goes and hangs <laughs> out by the window. It's yeah. great. But, what a hobby. 
and she and she and Malcolm have lunch on Thanksgiving Day <laughs> at Malcolm's hotel room to like hash this out. I mean, it's just all super weird. I do love uh, Malcolm in that she, moment where uh, she's like, "I'm sitting here eating Thanksgiving dinner with this total yeah, nutbag." Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and right, and she's like thinking about that interaction. Right, she's like, she's telling me this crazy stuff, which I am definitely <laughs> using, and she's gonna yeah, look yeah. like a weirdo. Yeah, exactly. And like, uh, because oh, because she's also really proud of owning a copy of the Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> that juror, right that's the other thing she's like super but she hasn't gotten around to reading all of it but yeah. yeah i know yeah i've never but got she, around to reading know, it all before the internet, yeah, it'll spoil right? the but ending like, <laughs> yeah, that article article four man yeah. i tell you <laughs> katie what are we playing and what are we playing for besides the wait. truth you are playing for you're playing for honor you're playing for justice you are playing to make sure that all of the 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 haters who try to lie to you and gaslight you and take your money you can you can best them and uh how we're going to do that so let me let me get myself together here but we're talking about the mole we're talking about the television program the mole which should I know what this is? The oh Mole okay. uh, first American season aired in, I think, 2001, and Anderson Cooper was the host for two delightful seasons. And the, pr- and the premise of the program <laughs> is that you get together about uh, tw- 15, 20 contestants, and one of them is planted there by the producers. And so what all the contestants are trying to do is win money at these challenges and find out who the mole is as the mole tries to sabotage them for the producers and take their money. Mm-hmm. So, so it's that that game that you play when you're 15 at a at a house party. What is what is that called? Called murderer? Oh yeah. Murder? Right? Or mafia? mafia yeah. Mafia. It's it, it's also the plot of a game called Among Us, which my kids play on iOS. Or my, yeah, it, which is like yeah, it's, it, you may have seen it. Where AOC <laughs> did a Twitch stream where she was playing it and raised money for something. Oh or other, right, but. with uh, everybody's favorite Turkish mm-hmm. hero Hassan Piper. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Subject of my favorite internet interaction last week, in which he and Chelsea Manning had a funny conversation. <laughs> So to to the mole. What stop dropping leftist names and get to our game? Let's, we have very important business <laughs> to attend to here. And again, as I've said, um, there there are some among us okay, who are among us, ha, huh, who are who are susceptible to being hoodwinked and bamboozled in the, the ways that a journalist might do. But there are others among us too, and those are better people who can <laughs> cut through the lies, deception. <laughs> and uh, fundamental limitations of human communication and, and they can arrive at absolute truth and those are the people who win the mole by guessing correctly who it is so at any rate what i'm going to do is briefly describe some of the challenges the contestants the mole were expected to do to help them f- identify the mole among them and then by asking you questions, I'm going to identify how you fit into the whole mole enterprise. So are you like the mole? Are you like the, are you the journalist? Or are you maybe one of the a, a memorable contestant type? Maybe you're the host. So, um, 
Let's Ooh. play. Somehow I doubt it. <laughs> uh, let's play a, a, a rodent-based game. Okay. So here is your challenge. Uh, my challenge is to find out where on the piece of paper that I actually am beginning the game. <laughs> your challenge would be different than that. Okay. So you're a three-person team, my friends. You're given a choice of two gnomes. And um, what you have to do is is decide which gnome you want to carry across a series of obstacles with you. Uh, the gnome is covered in lard, so it's very slippery. And you uh, must uh, you must get uh, it safely to its mm. destination. It's vital. Okay. So presented with this. And the mole is trying to sabotage your lard gnome carrying. It's, ju- it's just like Alder James, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very okay. complicated it involves moles and butter and transportation or gnomes and butter and transportation but at any rate what they have to do is put the gnome into a, it's so it's just so absurd they have to climb the they climb you have to climb with a gnome atop a ladder and take a photograph with a lion and then you have to bicycle then you have to bicycle the mole or the the gnome across a a, some kind of a slalom and then take a van ride transport the so anyway (laughs) transport the gnome by van and the vans are always filled with stuff in this show like the the geese and the other such things so anyway so you're (laughs) part of the team you're you're the gnome (laughs) (laughs) i thought you were talking about the podcast tristan I know, I that was my first tattoo, like, and I was like, we all I, I, thought you, I thought you canceled it after the gnome. Um, okay, <laughs> so you're presented with a gnome challenge. How do you behave? Okay, so you are a model. That's your day job. So what you decide to do is scale the ladder with a buttered gnome and get ready for your close-up. Would you do that? Or... Or would you be the one who takes the gnome by van to an abandoned castle outside a small village? That van was filled with geese, and they must come back with you and the gnome. You lose the challenge when an inflatable raft pops out of the van, creating an exit route for 10 to 15 vengeful geese. (laughs) Or C, (laughs) C, do you do nothing to assist in transporting the slick gnome? but repeatedly shout, who is the saboteur to motivate the others? <laughs> oh, man. These are good. These are well, very... so as, as the guest, as the guest of honor, what, what are you, what are you thinking? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I get to go first, huh? Geese van, I guess. Geese van, yeah. I don't know. You know, the geese van. Yeah. <laughs> I, like I was thinking geese fan because you know taking it to the creepy castle outside oh cool we get to do the gothic on this but i actually i think yeah. i'm gonna be the one running around shouting who is the saboteur <laughs> <laughs> Very, uh, yeah i don't know almost well i knew i didn't want to be on the ladder that's all. no yeah, definitely that's not the problem. ladder but yeah no i think i'm the third one too just because of a fear of heights and b Katie, you are second the second one because it is Max Krivikolsky 
to be like comedy of errors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep, sure. I'd be I'd be in the van with the inflatable raft and geese. No, yeah. and I, I calling uh, somebody to pick me up. Megan, can you come get me? There's geese. Nobody here but us geese. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna recall like the diners in New Jersey drama. I'm going to recall. That you once had to cancel lunch on me because you got gasoline on yourself. <laughs> you're, going, you're going to recall every interaction we've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, it's a its a delightful quality. <laughs> oh, you're too kind. Okay, so here's here's question two. I'm going to figure out which one to use them all, so be ready. Okay. Um, okay. okay. It's certainly one of the people who used to be journalists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, sure, sure. right. Uh... So... The first challenge, this is a multi-part challenge. It's quite simple, though. You have to identify whether you'd like to drink wine. And if you would, you're taken to a vineyard to do I Love Lucy with some uh, grapes, <laughs> with a with a barrel of grapes. Sure. And what you have to Great. do, just, just you, you just stomp them. And, um, and so basically, you can do it 15 minutes at a time with a buddy. And if you can fill five bought wine bottles then you get ten thousand dollars it's the mold. okay okay so you, you just stomp the grapes into the bottle and then you gotta age it i guess is that what you, I, yeah. I guess please stop assigning logic to this <laughs> it's the mole with anderson cooper and we're at it right. we're at a very nice vineyard right now trying to have a right. good time with making foot wine <laughs> but so so faced with this task what do you do Stomp the grapes like you're in the cast of Stomp. Your cup runneth over. That's that's choice A. Choice B is sample the foot wine, and then you just run around the vineyard looking for clues. You, mm-hmm. but you're too sloshed to notice the signs, flyers, and clues and billboards that the producers have put up as the identity of the actual mole, or who they want you to think is the mole. Or are you C? Are you the third player who? Elects to take it easy. But on the mole, taking it easy means that you'll be shackled in a castle wearing a mat, <laughs> wearing an iron mask until you are discovered. The other players never find you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I, and I also, I, I, so I said this is very like Alder James. I feel like it's taken a definite Robert Hansen uh, with, 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 the, with the foot wine. Uh, vibe here, at the, uh, but uh, oh, I don't know. Well, I don't want to get cask of amontillado. That's for sure. Uh, so three <laughs> sounds bad. Uh, but also, I don't know. Yeah, just getting drunk and not doing this and running around sounds cool to me. I think I'll do B for this one. It's okay. I would choose B only, but I but is it is it fresh foot wine or is it actual <laughs> like I don't want to drink the foot wine that has just been pressed. I'd like because I also don't think that would be fermented. Yeah. I don't think that'd be wine. That's just juice. <laughs> it's foot yeah, juice. you know you gotta have no. We'll age some foot wine. It'll be foot wine, okay, so you can okay. definitely get the so full it's wine. It's pretty. It's not the wine that's being made there. I'll drink the wine also. Then yeah. this was made after, by different feet. After, after <laughs> right, making right. by. Per- pervert Robert Hansen joke. I had totally forgotten about the foot wine part of this. <laughs> I just decided. <laughs> right, right. Anyway. I mean, I'm going to go with A because I'm in- I'm not lazy, but I am impatient. So if I can just stomp and get out, yeah, let's just yeah, do that. Yeah. Okay, I like it. 
All right, here's your last question before we find out so much. Mm-hmm. So yeah. much. Okay. You must do one of the three, quote unquote, unpleasant activities. Okay. Um, so so which do you choose? And, and what happens? So this is, I'm, I'm trying to get at your character here. I want the mm. unmediated truth of your being and your soul that I can only get by <laughs> these BuzzFeed style quizzes mm-hmm. that have really gone off the rails. <laughs> Um, okay. okay, so you've got to do one of these. You could just like, write us a letter, and then we record six hundred pages of like inanity. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so so which one is going to be like you? Which one will be you? Um, spend an hour alone in a room with a large boa constrictor. The electrical wiring happens to be faulty. The producers had nothing to do with it. So you may be plunged into total darkness for some of that time. But that's not a poisonous snake. Like just for, just for. Just hugs. Clarity. Just hugs. Just loves hugs. Um, (laughs) uh, Or, or, uh, okay, so you got another option, which is the, um, the, you lose the mole lottery and you have to pick last to see who goes and you're left in a, you're left with the only option is to be in a box with cockroaches for an hour. They drop like one in at a time. They really did it. I swear. And uh, so when you find out that that's what you have to do, you scream, faint, and do it anyway. Um, mm-hmm. Or C, you're the player who spends the night in a regular hotel room. Totally regular. It's You, you arrive and it's looking normal <laughs> as hell in there. Um, but you quickly find out that tiny bubbles will be playing blasted on a loop all night long (laughs) you descend into madness burrowing into the ground much like a mole even though you were never the mole oh so we snakes you just snakes 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 snakes. I, I oh man I don't know Justin's going snakes, bugs. Yeah, snakes, snakes bugs. bugs. Um, I don't know. I've been, you know what, actually. So my son has a nightlight that plays songs all night uh, mm-hmm. on, on. You've made well, a huge loop, mistake. All, all night. night. Yeah. Well, unless we wake up to like, you know, to turn it off uh, is uh, the uh, uh, twinkle, twinkle little star. So I've become quite. Uh, attuned at pushing that out of my brain. So a tiny bubbles mm-hmm. on a loop. I, I think I could do it. I, I honestly think mm. I could do it. So I'm going to go and see. <laughs> that's pretty tough. That's good. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's you. All right. So results, the person. So, okay. You, you should guess who do you think is the mole among you? Tristan. Tristan. <laughs> I'll go Tristan. Uh, now, four. That was easy. Okay. You have to pay it. The least, who would seem the least likely? You would uh, never expect. Uh, are you, are uh, you in agreement with that? That is agreement with I that mean, assessment? I, like, I, my patience for games of any kind is quite low. So, I mean, if I have an opportunity to sabotage it, sure. Mm. <laughs> Does sound like something a mole would say. Yeah. So what? So what's uh, who's the what's the answer, we, Katie? Oh, the actual answer is 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 Megan was the mole. You, <laughs> oh, Meg, oh, you, oh. you chose more of mole like answers than any any <laughs> other contestant. Um. 
also stomping the grapes. Stomping the grapes is something that the mole would do simply to not attract too much to seem normal. Yeah, to see, seem normal and regular. Mm. The boa constrictor choice is a scary choice, but not really that bad. Perfect for a mole. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. Perfect for a mole. Um, totally. You almost you almost ended up as Anderson Cooper in doing nothing about the gnome because he spent most of the time hosting the show asking who the saboteur was, wearing a leather jacket, and um, and yeah. getting getting wasted on TV. Um, and it was cool. That's awesome. Yeah. That's funny. I don't mind being thought of as appearing normal, but actually completely a mess <laughs> underneath but i think McDon- i i really i think i think malcolm's right though because we were unable to identify the mole when she was right there in front of us yeah. all along mm. that's right that's yeah true yeah. ignorant even yeah. in herself oh <laughs> uh, that was a yeah that was fun that was that was a weird one but the weird weird ones are <laughs> often the best <laughs> I mean, also, like, anything in which we have to reflect on our psyches is always a bit of a true game in itself. I I, uh, had a I spent um, upwards of uh, four hours trying to come up with a game for this one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, it's hard. I mean, it's like, I mean, also, we don't do a lot of, like, people and subjects that are still alive on this show. And it feels weird. It's like, I'm all all, like, the language I'm using to talk about the trial. It's like, oh, I I actually better be, like, pretty specific about this because, you know, it's. (laughs) We're not going to get sued. No. Anyway. Um, Well, Thanks. And thank you, Sub. It was really nice to talk to you about this book. This was I really super fun, guys. Thank you. I'm uh, honored to be asked. Pleasure to be nominated. Whatever. <laughs> uh, no, Sorry, thank you, you guys. That's such a crappy club. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just so good. I, I, I am a big fan. Yeah, I think you guys should uh, set up some sort of like mechanism for people who like you to give you d- donations if they want. All right. <laughs> I'm sure that uh, I think you should do that. But I won't get any money, people. So don't. Th- th- don't blame. Thanks for thanks for the plug. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, th- thanks, thanks so much. This is a lot of. Please allow us to be weed moms <laughs> right. on your dime. <laughs> this was a this was a lot of this was a lot. Of, yeah. Thank you, thank you, thanks, guys. Anyway, so this has been better red than dead. You can find Sub on Twitter at Substockman. You can find me on Twitter at Tussersaurus. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywo. You can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Ed Pod. At email us at betteredpodcast at gmail.com, but only if it's to tell us all about your favorite writer who wears a three-piece suit. We almost certainly want no more information than that, but just tell us who it is. <laughs> Name only. Our intro music is Let Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Rate us, review, and subscribe. It's so cool to get reviews. We love it. And next week, we will be finishing up our three-parter on the new journalism with Tom Wolfe's electric Kool-Aid acid test. And then we have Of One Blood on deck after that. So thanks, comrades. (laughs) 